Section 15 of Ulysses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ulysses by James Joyce, Part 2, The Odyssey, Episode 9, Scylla and Charybdis, Part 2. The benign forehead of the Quaker librarian enkindled rosily with hope. I hope Mr. Dedalus will work out his theory for the enlightenment of the public. And we ought to mention another Irish commentator, Mr. George Bernard Shaw. Nor should we forget Mr. Frank Harris. His articles on Shakespeare in the Saturday Review were surely brilliant. Oddly enough, he too draws for us an unhappy relation with the dark lady of the sonnets. The favored rival is William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke. I own that if the poet must be rejected, such a rejection would seem more in harmony with, what shall I say, our notions of what ought not to have been. Felicitously he ceased and held a meek head among them, ox egg, prize of their fray. He thous and these her with grave husband words. Dost love, Miriam? Dost love thy man? That may be too, Stephen said. There's a saying of Goethe's which Mr. McGee likes to quote, Beware of what you wish for in youth, because you will get it in middle life. Why does he send to one who is a buonaroba, a bay where all men ride, a maid of honor with a scandalous girlhood, a lordling to woo for him. He was himself a lord of language, and had made himself a coistral gentleman, and he had written Romeo and Juliet. Why? Belief in himself has been untimely killed. He was overborne in a cornfield first, ryefield, I should say, and he will never be a victor in his own eyes after, nor play victoriously the game of laugh and lie down. Assumed Don Giovannism will not save him. No later undoing will undo the first undoing. The tusk of the boar has wounded him there where love lies a-bleeding. If the shrew is worsted, yet there remains to her woman's invisible weapon. There is, I feel in the words, some goad of the flesh driving him into a new passion, a darker shadow of the first, darkening even his own understanding of himself. A like fate awaits him, and the two rages commingle in a whirlpool. They list, and in the porches of their ears I pour. The soul has been stricken mortally, a poison poured in the porch of a sleeping ear. But those who are done to death in sleep cannot know the manner of their quell unless their Creator endow their souls with that knowledge in the life to come. The poisoning and the beast with two backs that urged it, King Hamlet's ghost could not know of were he not endowed with knowledge by his Creator. That is why the speech, his lean, unlovely English, is always turned elsewhere, backward. Ravisher and ravished, what he would but would not, go with him from Lucrece's blue-circled ivory globes to Imogen's breast, bare, with its mole sink-spotted. He goes back, weary of the creation he has piled up to hide him from himself, an old dog licking an old sore. But because loss is his gain, he passes on towards eternity in undiminished personality, untaught by the wisdom he has written or by the laws he has revealed. His beaver is up. He is a ghost, a shadow now, the wind by Elsinore's rocks or what you will, the sea's voice, a voice heard only in the heart of him who is the substance of his shadow, the son consubstantial with the father. Amen, was responded from the doorway. Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? Entracht. A ribald face, sullen as a dean's, Buck Mulligan came forward, then blithe in motley towards the greeting of their smiles. My telegram. 
You were speaking of the gaseous vertebrate, if I mistake not, he asked of Stephen. Primrose-vested, he greeted gaily with his doffed Panama as with a bauble. They make him welcome. Was du verlascht, wirst du noch dienen. Brood of mockers, Photius, Pseudo-Malachi, Johann Most. He who himself begot Midler the Holy Ghost and himself sent himself, Agenbeier, between himself and others, who, put upon by his friends, stripped and whipped, was nailed like bat to barn door, starved on cross-tree, who let him bury, stood up, harrowed hell, fared into heaven, and there these nineteen hundred years sitteth on the right hand of his own self, but yet shall come in the latter day to doom the quick and dead when all the quick shall be dead already. Gloria in excelsis Deo. He lifts his hands. Veils fall. O oh, flowers, bells with bells with bells acquiring. Yes, indeed, the Quaker librarian said. A most instructive discussion. Mr. Mulligan, I'll be bound, has his theory, too, of the play and of Shakespeare. All sides of life should be represented. He smiled on all sides equally. Buck Mulligan thought, puzzled. Shakespeare, he said. I seem to know the name. A flying, sunny smile rayed in his loose features. To be sure, he said, remembering brightly, the chap that writes like singe. Mr. Best turned to him. Haynes missed you, he said. Did you meet him? He'll see you after at the DBC. He's gone to Gill's to buy Hyde's love songs of Connacht. I came through the museum, Buck Mulligan said. Was he here? The bard's fellow countryman, John Englinton, answered, are rather tired of our brilliancies of theorizing. I hear that an actress played Hamlet for the 408th time last night in Dublin. Vining held that the prince was a woman. Has no one made him out to be an Irishman? Judge Barton, I believe, is searching for some clues. He swears, his highness, not his lordship, by St. Patrick. The most brilliant of all is that story of Wilde's, Mr. Best said, lifting his brilliant notebook, that portrait of Mr. W. H., where he proves that the sonnets were written by Willie Hughes, a man of all Hughes. For Willie Hughes, is it not? the Quaker librarian asked. Or Huey Wills? Mr. William himself. W. H., who am I? I mean, for Willie Hughes, Mr. Best said, amending his gloss easily. Of course, it's all paradox, don't you know? Hughes and Hughes and Hughes, the color. But it's so typical the way he works it out. It's the very essence of wild, don't you know? The light touch. His glance touched their faces lightly as he smiled. A blonde ephebe. Tame essence of wild. You're darned witty. Three drams of uskabal you drank with Dan Deasy's ducats. How much did I spend? Oh, a few shillings. For a plump pressman. Humor wet and dry. Wit. You would give your five wits for youth's proud livery he pranks in. Liniments of gratified desire. There be many mo. Take her for me. In pairing time. Jove, a cool rut time send them. Yea, turtled of her. Eve. Naked, wheat-bellied sin. A snake coils her. Fang ends kiss. Do you think it is only a paradox? The Quaker librarian was asking. The mocker is never taken seriously when he is most serious. They talked seriously of Mocker's seriousness. Buck Mulligan's again heavy face eyed Stephen a while. Then, his head wagging, he came near, drew a folded telegram from his pocket. His mobile lips read, smiling with new delight. Telegram, he said. Wonderful inspiration. Telegram. A papal bull. He sat on a corner of the unlit desk, reading aloud joyfully. The sentimentalist is he who would enjoy, without incurring the immense debtorship for a thing done, 
Signed, Daedalus. Where did you launch it from? The Kips? No, College Green. Have you drunk the four quid? The ant is going to call on your unsubstantial father. Telegram, Malachi Mulligan, the ship, Lower Abbey Street. Oh, you peerless mummer. Oh, you priestified kinchite. Joyfully, he thrust message and envelope into a pocket, but keened in a querulous brogue. It's what I'm telling you, Mr. Honey. It's queer and sick we were, Haynes and myself, the time himself brought it in. Twas murmur we did for gallus potion would rouse a friar, I'm thinking, and he limp with leching. And we one hour and two hours and three hours in Connery, sitting civil waiting for pints apiece. He wailed. And we to be there, Mavrone, and you to be unbeknownst, sending us your conglomerations the way we to have our tongues out a yard long, like the drouthy clerics do be fainting for a pussful. Stephen laughed. Quickly, warningfully, Buck Mulligan bent down. The tramper Singe is looking for you, he said, to murder you. He heard you pissed on his hall door in Glastool. He's out in Pampooties to murder you. Me, Stephen exclaimed. That was your contribution to literature. Buck Mulligan gleefully bent back, laughing to the dark, eavesdropping ceiling. Murder you, he laughed. Harsh gargoyle face that warred against me over our mess of hash of lights in Rue St. Andre des Arts. In words of words for words, palabra, oisin with Patrick. Fawn man he met in clamorant woods, brandishing a wine bottle. Say Vendredi Saint. Murthering Irish, his image, wandering, he met. I, mine. I met a fool of the forest. Mr. Leister, an attendant, said from the door ajar, in which everyone can find his own. So Mr. Justice Madden, in his diary of Master William Silence, has found the hunting terms. Yes, what is it? There's a gentleman here, sir, the attendant said, coming forward and offering a card. From the freeman. He wants to see the files of the Kilkenny people for last year. Certainly, certainly, certainly. Is the gentleman... He took the eager card, glanced, not saw, laid down, unglanced, looked, asked, creaked, asked. Is he? Oh, there. Brisk in a galliard he was off, out. In the daylit corridor he talked with voluble pains of zeal, in duty-bound, most fair, most kind, most honest, broad brim. This gentleman, Freeman's Journal, Kilkenny people, to be sure. Good day, sir. Kilkenny, we have certainly... A patient silhouette waited, listening. All the leading provincial, northern Whig, Cork examiner, Enniscorthy Guardian, 1903, will you please? Evans, conduct this gentleman. If you just follow the attend... Oh, please allow me. This way, please, sir. Voluble, dutiful, he led the way to all the provincial papers, a bowing dark figure following his hasty heels. The door closed. The Sheeny! Buck Mulligan cried. He jumped up and snatched the card. What's his name? Ike Moses? Bloom. He rattled on. Jehovah, collector of prepuces, is no more. I found him over in the museum where I went to hail the foam-born Aphrodite, the Greek mouth that has never been twisted in prayer. Every day we must do homage to her. Life of life, thy lips enkindle. Suddenly he turned to Stephen. He knows you. He knows your old fellow. Oh, I fear me, he is Greeker than the Greeks. His pale Galilean eyes were upon her mesial groove. Venus Calipage, oh, the thunder of those loins, the god pursuing the maiden hid. We want to hear more, John Englinton decided with Mr. Best's approval. We begin to be interested in Mrs. S. Till now we had thought of her, if at all, as a patient Griselda, a Penelope stay-at-home. Antisthenes, pupil of Gorgias, Stephen said, took the palm of beauty from Kyrios Menelaus Broaddam, Argive Helen, 
the wooden mare of Troy in whom a score of heroes slept, and handed it to poor Penelope. Twenty years he lived in London, and, during part of that time, he drew a salary equal to that of the Lord Chancellor of Ireland. His life was rich. His art, more than the art of feudalism, as Walt Whitman called it, is the art of surfeit. Hot herring pies, green mugs of sack, honey sauces, sugar of roses, March pain, goose-buried pigeons, ringle candies. Sir Walter Raleigh, when they arrested him, had half a million francs on his back, including a pair of fancy stays. The Gambine woman, Eliza Tudor, had underlinen enough to vie with her of Sheba. Twenty years he dallied there between conjugial love and its chaste delights, and scortatory love and its foul pleasures. You know Manningham's story of the burgher's wife who bade Dick Burbage to her bed after she had seen him in Richard III, and how Shakespeare, overhearing, without more ado about nothing, took the cow by the horns, and, when Burbage came knocking at the gate, answered from the capon's blankets. William the Conqueror came before Richard III, and the gay lakin, Mistress Fitton, mount and cry, oh, and his dainty bird's knees, Lady Penelope Rich, a clean quality woman, is suited for a player, and the punks of the bankside a penny a time. Cour la reine, encore vansou, nous ferons de petites cochonneries. Minette, tu veux? The height of fine society, and Sir William Devnant of Oxford's mother, with her cup of canary for any cock canary. Buck Mulligan, his pious eyes upturned, prayed, Blessed Margaret, marry any cock. And Harry of six wives' daughter, and other lady friends from neighbor seats, as lawn Tennyson, gentleman poet, sings. But all those twenty years, what do you suppose poor Penelope in Stratford was doing behind the diamond panes? Do and do, thing done. In a rosary of Fetter Lane, of Gerard, herbalist, he walks. Grayed auburn, an azured harebell like her veins. Lids of Juno's eyes, violets. He walks. One life is all. One body. Do, but do. Afar, in a reek of lust and squalor, hands are laid on whiteness. Buck Mulligan rapped John Englinton's desk sharply. Whom do you suspect, he challenged. Say that he is the spurned lover in the sonnets. Once spurned, twice spurned. But the court wanton spurned him for a lord, his dear my love. Love that dare not speak its name. As an Englishman, you mean, John Sturdy Englinton put in, he loved a lord. Old wall where sudden lizards flash. At Charrington I watched them. It seems so, Stephen said, when he wants to do for him, and for all other and singular uneared wombs, the holy office an ostler does for the stallion. Maybe, like Socrates, he had a midwife to mother as he had a shrew to wife. But she, the giglet wanton, did not break a bed vow. Two deeds are rank in that ghost's mind. A broken vow, and the dull-brained yokel on whom her favor has declined, deceased husband's brother. Sweet Anne, I take it, was hot in the blood. Once a wooer, twice a wooer. Stephen turned boldly in his chair. The burden of proof is with you, not with me, he said, frowning. If you deny that in the fifth scene of Hamlet he has branded her with infamy, tell me why there is no mention of her during the thirty-four years between the day she married him and the day she buried him. All those women saw their men down and under, Mary, her goodman John, Anne, her poor dear Willen, when he went and died on her, raging that he was the first to go, Joan, her four brothers, Judith, her husband, and all her sons, Susan, her husband too, while Susan's daughter Elizabeth, to use granddaddy's words, wed her second, having killed her first. Oh yes, mention there is. 
In the years when he was living richly in royal London to pay a debt, she had to borrow forty shillings from her father's shepherd. Explain you then. Explain the swan song, too, wherein he has commanded her to posterity. He faced their silence. To whom thus Englanton, you mean the will, but that she has been explained, I believe, by jurists. She was entitled to her widow's dower. At common law, his legal knowledge was great, our judges tell us. Him Satan fleers, mocker, and therefore he left out her name from the first draft, but he did not leave out the presents for his granddaughter, for his daughters, for his sister, for his old cronies in Stratford and in London. And therefore, when he was urged, as I believe, to name her, he left her his second-best bed, punked, left her his second-best, left her his best-a-bed, second-best, left-a-bed, whoa! End of section 15. Recorded by Richard Wallace, 26 May 2011.